I'm Jason Chaffetz. I'm Katie Pavlich. I'm Steve Ducey. And this is the Fox News Rundown. Monday, May 9th, 2022. I'm Lisa Brady. Are we learning the right lessons to survive the COVID pandemic and be ready for the next one? Until we accept the reality of this virus and stop our magical thinking, we have the tools to save everyone's lives. We just have to make sure that people know. We speak with former White House Task Force Coordinator, Dr. Deborah Burke. I'm Chris Foster. If you've seen Bar Rescue star John Taffer on TV, there's a decent chance he's speaking his mind, sometimes forcefully, something he recommends. In today's world, no matter what side of the political spectrum you're on, we better speak up because values that we believe in are starting to disappear. And I'm Guy Benson. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. For many Americans, life feels as close to normal as it has since before the pandemic. Packed concerts and sporting events, more workers back in offices, and millions of people planning summer travel. I mean, we're both retired now, and, you know, that we're looking to travel. I want to go. That's just it. I want to get out and see the world again. But COVID isn't over, with U.S. cases getting back over 60,000 per day, as deaths were closing in on 1 million. And globally, the World Health Organization now estimates about 15 million deaths, a combination of COVID fatalities and COVID-related deaths from problems including overwhelmed health care systems. Most of the excess deaths, that's 84 percent, are concentrated in Southeast Asia, Europe and the Americas. WHO technical officer Dr. William Sambury says deaths are higher in older adults and in men. Several Omicron subvariants are now circulating in the U.S., and the CDC is projecting a big jump in hospitalizations and deaths in the coming weeks. Well, we certainly have the tools um, to be in a different place. Dr. Deborah Burks, former White House Coronavirus Task Force Coordinator and author of the new book, Silent Invasion, the untold story of the Trump administration, COVID-19, and preventing the next pandemic before it's too late. I I look at it as a two-step process. We want to get to a place where every American can survive in the time of COVID, and we want to get to a place where every American can thrive despite COVID being with us. And we're not even to the place where every American can survive, even though we have the tools to make that possible. Cases have been rising nationwide, um, some of that from the Omicron subvariant. But the public reaction and the government reaction aren't the same now. We don't see a lot of mandates coming back. Many people don't seem very concerned about masking anymore. Many events and venues feel like old times. Are we collectively making a mistake? Well, okay. so this is where it's really important to make the data available to every American, because I think if they saw the real data. So when people say the fatality rate from COVID is about 0.3, that's across the whole American population. That's the wrong denominator. What you need to be looking at and what every family should be aware of is what is happening to Americans by specific age bands. So what's happening to people over 90, over 80, over 70, and what is their fatality rate 
related to COVID. And I think if people saw that data clearly, they would understand that they still have family members at significant risk. And now with the position that the government has put us in, everybody is going to have to learn those tools and make sure that they're taking the personal responsibility to protect those vulnerable family members. Remember always, this virus was very low in producing illness in young people, particularly those under 35. And so early on in the pandemic, they were the ones unknowingly spreading the virus because they didn't have significant symptoms. Now there's a whole group of us that are vaccinated and boosted, and now we're the ones spreading the virus. So it's more about right now, we have to educate everyone and empower them to know how they protect themselves and their family members as we move in a new phase by talking about it being a new phase, but really understanding that this virus is gonna be with us. It's gonna continue to prey on the elderly and the vulnerable among us. Finally, I know this is a long answer, but I wanna make sure I get it in. One of the real issues we have in this country that's being swept under the rug is the lack of access to primary health care in our rural America. And so some of the reason why the fatalities are higher in what they call red counties, um, look at those counties and see that they do not have the access to the same technology and health care that many of the urban centers do. In your book, Silent Invasion, you write about sounding the alarm and a lack of urgency in the Trump administration. You also criticize the CDC, though, and having had various roles in government through multiple administrations, in addition to being a military veteran, would it have made much difference which president was in charge when this started if it's really the CDC where so many of these decisions you know, about how to handle a health crisis are being made? Well, it's clear our institutions prepared for the wrong pandemic. They wanted to confront the pandemic they had planned for, not the pandemic that we had. And part of the reason I wrote the book is because I couldn't get anyone's attention. This is bigger than who's in the Oval Office. I also wanted to make it clear that the president can set the tone for the country and having a president that underplayed this pandemic, and I want to make that very clear, that communication also hurt how Americans viewed its seriousness after about April 15th of 2020. So that certainly contributed. But if we just look at the last year, we've had 450,000 Americans die since March 1st, 2021. If nothing else, that should convince every American that this is bigger than who's in the Oval Office and the issues that were in 2020 are still here in 2022. And if we don't address them, we're going to continue to have the same outcome. You mentioned the pandemic plan changed quite a bit when the White House transitioned from the Trump to the Biden administration and that you really you weren't really looked to with that transition. Do, do you think if the two administrations maybe had exchanged more information, listened to each other more, we would have seen, you know, more positive results when facing the Delta and Omicron surges, for instance? You know, Lisa, thank you for picking up on that, because I have been so privileged to see what we can do as a people when we work across 
Congresses. We work across administrations. You know, sometimes it take on big things. And certainly this pandemic is a big thing. You have to be willing to listen and learn from each other. And I can't tell you how much I learned from both Republican governors and Democratic governors. I was willing to listen to both and see what was working, what wasn't working, share that across the country so that everybody would not continue to make the same mistakes. And although I was very hopeful about the Biden plan, the Biden plan that he had put out in the summer of 2020 was not the plan that they followed. And I think part of that is because they truly believed rather than talking to us and wanting to learn the lessons that we had learned and hard fought lessons over that year, I think they believe that we didn't do anything right um, and we're doomed really to repeat some of the mistakes that we had made but had corrected by the summer and fall of 2021 having to do with our supply chain and access and really working in concert with the private sector, which were extraordinary during this pandemic, and working in concert with our tribal nations and their leaders and with our local mayors and governors who really needed access to tools they didn't always get. It's interesting how many of the debates that go back to the beginning of the pandemic are still around. You know, um, do masks work? Do lockdowns work? China is facing criticism now for lockdowns. Do you think they worked in the U.S.? Is there evidence of that? And is there a difference in terms of effectiveness of lockdowns at the beginning of a pandemic versus how it is now in China when you're entering the third year of a pandemic? So you only use the tool of a lockdown when there is such a threat and you have so few tools to combat this illness. We didn't have any therapeutics. We had really very limited ventilators. There was no understanding on how to treat this. We could see hospitals being overwhelmed. And when hospitals are overwhelmed, the nurses and doctors cannot go through the normal decision-making process that saves many people's lives. Crisis management in a hospital is never a good thing. And so the only time you utilize that kind of lockdown or flattening the curve is when you're in a crisis. Um, and I think after that April time period, we were never in that type of crisis again because we had learned and we had more tools. And so what China should be doing right now is using the global tools that are now possible and really um, move to the what what I think was the next phase of the pandemic is education and utilizing tools, but critically Education and empowering people only works if you eliminate the barriers of access to health care. And I think what you're seeing played out across this country is not just misinformation, but lack of access to um, the health care that can save their lives. That brings me to my last question. And I, I apologize in advance for asking it, but I really uh, would like to have your opinion um, on whether another, you know, really catastrophic variant is possible with this coronavirus? Um, or, you know, do you think the worst is over? Wow. No, I don't think the worst is over because in my mind, the worst is still not having every American survive. I, I believe our goal in this pandemic, our starting goal 
is all Americans can survive in a time of COVID. And we're not there. Um, if you have any less goal than that, then you accept the fact that 20, 30, 40, 100,000, 200,000 Americans are going to die. I, I call people's attention to the Amicron surge. Let's be very clear. These, this is an RNA virus. It lives to make mistakes and create these mutations. Not intentionally, it's doing it randomly, but one random one of those, as we can clearly see, increases its ability to move from person to person. That becomes the dominant variant. This was predictable from day one, and it's why I was so concerned about this virus. This is how RNA viruses work. They are constantly making mistakes when they replicate. And one virus in you is replicating hundreds of thousands of times and creating millions of little daughters. So until we accept the reality of this virus and stop our magical thinking, we have the tools to save everyone's lives. We just have to make sure that people know about them and know how they can get them and ensure that people have access to them. Still sounding the alarm. <laughs> Congratulations um, on your book, Silent Invasion, the untold story of the Trump administration, COVID-19 and preventing the next pandemic before it's too late. Dr. Deborah Burks, thank you so much for your time. And thank you for the great questions. I am so appreciative that you're so skillful with this. This is Guy Benson with your Fox News commentary coming up. John Taffer's on TV dozens of hours a week in new episodes and reruns of Bar Rescue, where he tries to whip struggling bars, restaurants, and other businesses into shape. Stop! You picked up that bacon with your bare hands, then put your hands all over this plate. You're going to kill somebody. You put gloves on your hand, go touch raw chicken, then touch every handle in this kitchen. What the hell are you guys doing? The show's on Paramount Network and streaming on Paramount+. Plus. John's an author, too. Doing Bar Rescue now for 12 years, I've realized how I use conflict to change people and open their minds. His third book's called The Power of Conflict, Speak Your Mind and Get the Results You Want. Then I look at history, you know, and, and where would we be without conflict? Even, con- even conflict in Congress creates great bills and such. Yeah. So this isn't about cursing somebody out online. It's not about screaming at your brother over politics. This is about dignified, deliberate conflict. Yeah. And, and, and we're seeing a lot of undignified conflict now, like you mentioned, especially on, say, social media, where yeah. there really are, are no repercussions. You're not going to get popped in the nose. Yep. And it also kind of, do you think it drives people away from the center where everybody just kind of gets in their camps and hunkers down? I think that's the case. And, you know, in today's world, no matter what side of the political spectrum you're on, we better speak up because values that we believe in are starting mm-hmm. to disappear. So the whole purpose of this book was to give people the confidence to realize you can engage with dignity and you yeah. can engage in a constructive, positive way. You've been known on television to throw a plate or two and to yeah. get in people's faces and yell a little bit. But you say that that's always or at least almost always in complete control, that, it that, that it's that it's that it's strategic. It's deliberate. You know, I go to these businesses. They've been failing for, for mm-hmm. in many cases, months or years. They're in debt, hundreds of thousands of dollars. They've been told their business stinks by other people. Yeah. They've been told they're losing money. But I got to get noticed. I got to right. open this. Per- so I get extreme because I want to open up his brain. And I find if I can just shatter their confidence a tiny bit through an act like that, yeah. I can change everything about them when that little opening happens. 
Yeah, it's. Uh, I've seen you play good cop and bad cop. You're just one guy, but you play. You can. You play good cop and bad cop in the same interaction sometimes you'll you know yeah. maybe somebody gets a hug before they get you know what you're really screwing up here and you know that's an amazing thing to, to i never thought that you could even be this way mm-hmm. so i'll say things to people that are very very offensive or upsetting to them yeah. and get a hug five minutes later <laughs> it's well, remarkable you know why if people think you're well intended and that's the key to conflict right if you think i respect you chris mm-hmm. and you think that what you say means something to mm-hmm. me then you're going to treat me with respect back and it becomes a dignified exchange of ideas and we learn from each other we both grow from those things the worst thing is when we don't speak up and in the book I did a bunch of research on what happens to us physiologically if we hold these things in and don't speak up it's terrible I was gonna bring up I was gonna bring that up we, we, we always hear you know don't bottle up your emotions yada yada but there actually are physical repercussions to it. Your brain yeah. changes. We talked about that in the book. You, you, your, your morphins dull and there are certain aspects. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so is that the way somebody wants to live their lives, holding yeah. everything in and thinking to themselves that their views don't matter? Mm-hmm. See, I believe everybody's views matter and everybody mm-hmm. should know that their views matter and they should have the confidence to stick up for them. And I think people are scared because of what you said, Chris, you know, the ugly conflict that yeah. happens online and the distasteful personal attacks and such. You and I could disagree politically doesn't mean I don't like you. Sure. doesn't mean I don't respect you. This is about respectful engagement uh, for people who need to re-engage. And you also write in here about um, internal conflict being good sometimes, too, where you want to kick in a little cognitive dissonance because it's, it's, it's exercise for yeah. you. Yeah. Um, it, you can either... Maybe you learn something that you didn't know. Say you can go, go out, you recommend go out and consume stuff, read stuff, watch stuff that you wouldn't necessarily read or watch. Say it's politics, you don't watch you, MSNBC versus Fox, mm-hmm. whatever. whatever whichever, if you watch one of those, go watch the other for a little while and, and, and take that in. And maybe it strengthens your positions yes. and, and allows you to argue them better because you now understand the other side. Yep. Or maybe you learn a little bit. Or you learn, or sometimes you know, you, what you do is you realize that, wow, I see why he feels that way. Even though I disagree with him, yep. I see why he feels that way, which makes it a lot easier to engage in conflict. You're right, internal conflict. You know, we all have these internal things. We want everybody mm-hmm. to be happy in the world, right? You don't want anybody starving. Yeah. So we want to open up our borders to everybody in the world, but then hold on. There's another discipline to that. No, we can't. Do, so, a lot of us struggle with these internal issues. Uh, you know, abortion is a great one. Nobody wants to see babies killed. But, you know, these are powerful issues that sometimes we need to deal with within ourselves. And that internal conflict we talk about in the book as well. I find as I get older, not that, not things that are, are truly important to me, but I find as I get older, I'm, I'm finding myself wanting to have fewer hot takes on every single thing. I'm giving myself more permission to say, you know what? I don't have an opinion on this, and I'm not going to argue it. What about that? Well, you know, then obviously the engagements that you've done in the past have caused you to say, I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. You know, the people are jerks that I'm communicating with or whatever. They're insulting. Who the hell wants to do that? You know, I talk in a book about the premise of dignity. If you and I were politicians, Mm -hmm. and I'm going to insult you and and degrade you publicly, why would you sit at the table with me? Mm -hmm. But if you know I'm going to treat you with dignity, then you would sit at the table with me. So the whole premise of this working is dignity. You got to give it to the other side. That's when you can engage. Yeah, we saw a lot of this. We've still seen a lot of this during the coronavirus pandemic, where anybody who wears a mask or is triple vaxxed and boosted, to some people, oh, you're a sheep, you're afraid. On the other hand, if you don't do those things, you're a moron Neanderthal who doesn't believe in science. When, when 
maybe just let people have the space to do what they think is best. I completely agree with that. And, you know, in the case of COVID, this is life and death. These are important decisions. They should be left to us. You know, we have a restaurant, the Taffer's Tavern in Alpharetta, Georgia. Mm -hmm. And during COVID, there were no regulations there. If we asked customers to put masks on, there would have been a revolt on the street in front of the restaurant. Go to the other side of the country. It's the exact opposite at the same time. So we survived in both places, didn't we? Or most of us did in both places. So, you know, I'm not sure we know what is right or wrong, but I think we should know what's right or wrong for ourselves. Let's talk about Taffer's Tavern, um, this fast casual franchise thing you got going on. You say that in these times of skyrocketing prices and restaurants really having a hard time, or if they survived at all in the pandemic, you think you've cracked a little bit of a code to cost control. Can you share it? Sure. You know, when we started creating Taffer's Tavern, it was years ago, Trump was president, and unemployment was so low that we couldn't find employees for the restaurant business. And it's been an issue that's plagued the industry for a lot of years. So I said, boy, using robotics and computers, could I create a really high-quality, casual restaurant that has 60% less labor in the back of the house? Mm -hmm. So we reinvented the kitchen with all new technologies and new systems. And by doing that labor reduction in the back of the house, which is the, the biggest costs we have, yep. uh, we came up with some of the best prime costs in the industry, as they call them. And uh, as a result, when you look at inflation and the impact that restaurants are having, the savings that we put into our uh, uh, operations have almost covered that increase. Wow. Is that translatable to a mom and pop pizza joint, or is that something that you've just been able to tap into because of the nature of this restaurant? Well, you know, I think technology today is growing. When you, when you look at the restaurant industry in particular, every solution is technology-based, whether it's kiosks or computerized cooking mm-hmm. or burger-flipping machines, yep. French fry machines. So, yes, in the next few years, all these things are going to become available to everyone, and the prices are going to come down. So, what happens, speaking in, in the future, in the bigger picture, what happens down the road when robots are flipping burgers and people are ordering for themselves and when and when trucks drive themselves at some point maybe what do we do uh what do we do with everybody have you thought about this you know i have and i thought about this exact thing was said 30 years ago about computers. It's true. When we put computers, everybody's going to lose their job. What well, we created whole new industries as a result, and everybody didn't lose their job. So I think this is an evolutionary process, and I think there's opportunities for people in robotics and all of these industries as we grow. Do you think that restaurant prices, artificially low isn't exactly what I'm trying to say, but for a long time, that burger might have been seven ninety five. dollars Suddenly, it's $14. Um, and part of that is is cost increase that yeah. we're seeing now, but also it's a weird thing where it wasn't eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen. It was nine, and then it was fourteen, and it leads to this sticker, sticker shock for consumers. Yeah, and we're experiencing that, and you know, meat is up about fifteen percent, as you know, Chris. So, you know, we can't keep pushing this on. Fourteen bucks, I can't get eighteen, twenty, twenty-two dollars for a hamburger. Yeah. At some point, it gets ridiculous, and everybody pushes back. Right. So, restaurants have a real problem. Other solutions, we're trying to lower portions where we can, mm-hmm. save costs another way. But you're right, uh, uh, the elasticity of the marketplace is only going to go so far, yeah. and I'm not sure we can cross that fifteen dollar threshold for. A burger in many places. Yeah. Well, the portion thing might not be the worst thing in the world. I know a lot of places do. That's part of their selling point is that you get these huge portions. But, yeah. um, you know, maybe maybe people could afford to, you know, if it's on the plate, you might eat it. If it's not, you might not notice. You know, it's interesting. There's a restaurant that, I don't want to mention names, of course, that has huge portions like you're talking about. And I've sat in the, in the kitchen by the dishwasher just to see how much comes back. Yeah. And about 30, 35% of every plate comes back and is thrown out. So there is an argument for reducing portions and managing costs in those ways. But people still need to be satisfied. Um, you tell a story pretty early on in the book uh, about a conflict you had. And I just thought this was interesting and a, and a testament to the show about how... Uh, 
an executive kind of got in everybody's face during a, during early during taping, or maybe it was before taping, I don't know, and, and, and said, okay, you make this face, you say this, you say that, um, leave something disgusting on the bathroom floor, um, and you you threatened to walk. Like Of course, all of these shows, you have to create a narrative and, and, and yada, 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 but you don't have to lie. No, you don't. And, and when I started the show, my deal with the network was, look, I'm lucky. I had already made a few dollars and had a reputation yeah. when I started the show. So I didn't need it. And I didn't have to be a slave to it, if you will. So I made it clear to the network I wanted to do something authentic. And a new executive came on set and started mm-hmm. doing unauthentic things. And I said some nasty words to him, which I described completely in the book, <laughs> and threw him off set. And the show was canceled for that day. And I'll never forget it. The uh, president of the network walked around the block with me the next day and said, you know, John, we can have creative disagreements, but you can't tell the VP <laughs> of the network to go blank himself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So maybe maybe that wasn't um, as dignified a conflict as you could have had, but um, but you did what you had to do. And there's great famous conflicts we talk about in the book. You know, some famous ones are Roy and Walt Disney. Mm-hmm. And Walt was the creative one, but he would have spent them at a house and home. Roy was the one who had to keep telling Walt, no, 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 no. Mm-hmm. And there's a famous uh, segment we talk about in the book in Snow White, mm-hmm. where there's a defect in the film and it looks like sparkles. Okay. And Walt wanted to fix it and it was $150,000 and Roy said, no, no, no. And they fought like hell over it. And when you go watch Snow White, now you'll see those blips in the movie. They never changed it. I'll go watch. Yeah, I'll see if I find it. I'll, I'll prompt the kids see if we can sp- uh, spot the sparkles. John Taffer, new book, uh, "The Power of Conflict." Uh, great to meet you, man. Thanks for coming on. Same here. Good to see you, Chris. Here's a look at the week ahead. Monday is Victory Day in Russia. The national celebration marks the day Nazi Germany surrendered to the former Soviet Union. Many analysts expecting a speech by President Vladimir Putin designed to shed a positive light on his country's invasion of Ukraine. A Victory Day parade is also planned with Russian troops marching Moscow's Red Square. Tuesday, primary elections are set for Nebraska and West Virginia. In Nebraska, a Trump-endorsed Republican candidate for governor faces accusations of improper behavior with a number of women, including a state senator. Thursday, President Biden hosts Southeast Asian leaders in Washington for a special U.S.-ASEAN summit. The gathering comes as tensions increase in the South China Sea, violence in Burma, and concerns over some Asian countries' failure to condemn Russia for its invasion of Ukraine. Saturday, former President Trump continues hitting the campaign trail ahead of the 2022 midterms with a rally in Austin, Texas. And that's a look at your week ahead. I'm Rich Dennison, Fox News. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Rate and review the Fox News Rundown on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Guy Benson. Benson. What's on your mind? With abortion jurisprudence in the news this week, a brand new poll sheds light on Americans' complex and sometimes contradictory views. The latest survey nationwide from Fox News finds a substantial majority of Americans oppose overturning Roe versus Wade. However, the same poll finds majority support for significant abortion restrictions recently implemented in states like Mississippi, Florida, and Texas. A slim majority is in favor of Texas's six-week ban, and a double-digit majority favors a 15-week ban, which is very much 
in the mainstream, both in America and in the Western world. Those restrictions are not constitutionally permissible under the existing Roe and Casey precedents. Many Americans falsely believe that Roe versus Wade being overturned means that all abortions become illegal in the United States. That's not true. What is true is that states will have the opportunity to craft their own abortion laws, including putting in some common sense restrictions like the ones that are widely supported by the American people. I'm Guy Benson. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts.